I always hate to end this part of our worship service, but if you could find your way back to your seats, uh, let's continue now with our worship. I uh, have a couple of announcements, one announcement about the life of our church. <clears throat> Hopefully you all heard last week uh, and the week before that that we are, our annual Christmas party is going to be December 11th. At 6 o'clock, um, last week I announced again that we're changing the venue. It was going to be at my house, but we think it's going to be too big. So instead, we're going to be doing it here at the church uh, in the assembly room, which is all the way on the west side of the building. If, uh, if you haven't ever come to the church and gone in the 3rd Avenue exit that or entrance, that's the place to go. So go to 3rd Avenue, uh, and there's a, there's a big... Uh, big entryway that says office entrance, and you can come in through that door, <clears throat> and the party will be right there. So December 11th, Saturday night, 6 o'clock here, uh, ugly sweater contest, as always, and the entrance will be on 3rd Avenue. Uh, and I think that's it for announcements. So right now, it's time to uh, dismiss our kids. If you have kids from 5 to 8, and you would like to send them to our children's church, Ministry, uh, now's the time to send them right up front here and uh, sign them in if you haven't done so already, or our workers can sign them in and we'll bring them back to you right before, uh, right before uh, the Lord's Supper. We'll bring, the, bring kids back to you. But as always, if you have kids with you and you want to keep them with you, please feel free to do that. We love it. Love it when families worship together. We're okay. If they're a little squirmy, a little noisy, we know that's part of the deal. So... Feel free to keep your kids with you if you like. Uh, we are <clears throat> continuing now in our uh, series on Genesis. And if you notice on the, on the cover, we're going we're gonna to be uh, covering Genesis chapter 6, the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 uh, again. If you remember, just like three months ago, uh, we did the same passage. And a couple of people have come up to me and like, hey, how are you... How are you going to preach the exact same passage three months later? What did, did you just try? Did you want an extra week off, or what's going on, Rob? <laughs> um, and the answer is: last time we talked about it, uh, I wanted to put it as part of our, you know, strange and curious passages of the Bible. You couldn't. Would be kind of hard to do that series, uh, that series without ending a series of weird and bizarre Bible passages. We really couldn't do that series without ending on the like the weirdest and uh, most bizarre passage of the Bible, which is arguably this one. Um, but last time we spent a lot of time talking about the who. Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? And I'm not going to go into any, uh, any kind of argument or any kind of ex explanation of who they are. If you want to get more information on that, go back to the August 15th service and re-listen to that. Um, today we're going to talk more about the what. What's happening in this passage? And what was it that was so bad as to warrant a divine extinction level event? That is what we see happening next. Uh, and what's happening in this passage, what's happening in this passage, to borrow uh, a phrase from Winston Churchill in World War II, is that this is not the end of the spiritual war. Uh, it's not even... Uh, the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning. It's the first age of the Bible, the first age uh, where God has laid out his purpose, his plan. Um, most or all of the main doctrines of our faith are contained 
in this first section. And here is the end of the beginning. It continues after the flood through Noah, but for all intents and purposes, this is the very end of the world before the flood. Uh, and so now, if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word, out of respect for the speaker who is God, who speaks to us through his word, let's give our attention to it now from Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, and these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for... We thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for preserving this history for us. Uh, there's so much for us to learn in this passage about ourselves, about the nature of our hearts, but even more so about uh, the infinite patience or the almost never-ending patience and the infinite mercy of God. Uh, and of Christ, and what you have done to save us, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to see that. Lord, we need your spirit to illuminate our minds to the text, without which, uh, without which we have no hope of understanding. So we pray, Lord, that you would, by the power of your spirit, illuminate our minds, give us minds to understand, and hearts to obey your perfect word, as you promised, Lord, to grow us through this to bring us closer to yourself, to help us to understand you better, to beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of my uh, favorite celebrity academics is a man named Dr. Aubrey de Grey from Cambridge University. He's a, uh, he's a biomedical gerontologist. Now, why would, why would that, that doesn't sound like a celebrity, does it, at all? <laughs> why would a guy, why would a biomedical gerontologist uh, have any kind of celebrity in the world? It's, it's because he works in something called the Human uh, Immortality Project, which is a, a genome research, uh, that, and, and their goal is to, is to use technology to end disease to the point where mankind achieves virtual immortality. And they say crazy stuff all the time. He's famous for coming out and making statements such as, uh, the, the first person who will live to be a thousand years is alive already today. Because he believes so much in his research, he believes so much uh, in their project that he really believes that we're going to break barriers and through science and through technology, eliminate disease and to the point where a normal human life, a normal human could expect to live a thousand years on the earth. 
And I find him fascinating because I've been following him for about 20 years, and as his claims uh, grow bigger, uh, his very impressive beard continues to grow grayer. And so it's kind of like I'm watching a race against time in slow motion. Who's going to win? Dr. DeGray or death? Uh, and it doesn't take long if you read that kind of stuff to figure out that Dr. DeGray is just a small part of a, a larger cultural project that's often uh, goes by the name of transhumanism, which is the quest of using technology to transcend all of our human barriers, all human obstacles and limitations and, uh, and, and, uh, and frailty, really. It includes the overarching technological quest to overcome the world of nature, uh, thus making us effectively omnipotent. It includes uh, the, the quest for artificial intelligence, whereby we use technology to augment our minds in such a way that we will eventually one day be effectively omniscient. Uh, it includes the metaverse that we've been hearing so much about. Even, you know, Facebook has just changed the corporate name to meta uh, uh, to point attention to what the next development in the world of the internet is going to be, this metaverse where you will be able to create in, in your own image, in your own imagination, uh, an online presence uh, through these digital avatars that will one day make us effectively omnipresent. Maybe you can, maybe you're taking a guess at where I'm going with this already. Uh, and much of what the academy studies under the, under the name of queer theory really isn't ultimately about, in their minds, attaining civil rights uh, for LGBT people. It is ultimately uh, about, if you read them, it's ultimately about just abolishing every repressive, leftover cultural artifact from failed religious superstition uh, and freeing people up, freeing humans up uh, to transcend sex and gender in, in such a way where you can recreate yourself in any way shape or form that you see fit, limited only by your imagination and the available technology. Uh, it's in, you know, in the minds of our culture, it's creating freedom. It's this transcending of boundaries. And so, really, the quest then, the quest, the underlying unifying theme of, of the, our modern world is... Uh, is to harness the power of technology and to create a new post-human humanity that is effectively eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and, and free in the biggest sense of the world. Uh, and, you know, in the words of that great theologian David Byrne, same as it ever was, same as it ever was. Why? Because that's always, always been the quest of mankind. Uh, for all of its technological prowess, the, really the only thing different about transhumanism is the name. It's always been the quest. It was the quest 
It's been the quest after the flood. It's been the quest before the flood. Uh, Same as it ever was. And the serpent said, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The quest to be like God without God has been the obsession of mankind post-fall. Always has been, it is now, and it will be until the day Jesus comes back. That's just how it is. Uh, and so, really, the big idea of this passage is that that's what these people are doing, too. And we see in it that as man tries to be like God without God, man tries to be like God without God, and yet God's patience and power prevail. And that's our outline. That's what we're going to follow today. Is man, man tries to be like God without God. But God's patience and God's power prevails. So let's look at first to be like God without God. Let's back, let me back up a minute and just give a quick history of sin, a history of where we're at up to this point in Genesis. When we get to Genesis 6 and the end of the beginning, uh, it began, sin began with Adam and Eve. They tried to be like God without God by deciding for themselves what would be good and bad. They transgressed that barrier of God being the one with the wisdom and power and knowledge to tell us what would be good and what would be bad and for them taking them that, that power uh, or trying to take that power of God to themselves. Cain tries to be like God without God by deciding for himself how and who he should worship, which ultimately is himself. And we saw that Lamech, Cain's descendant, He tried to be like God without God by changing the meaning of marriage to suit his own desires. He corrupted justice to serve himself, uh, and he started flexing the power of domination over over the, the people of the earth for his own glory and his own power. And last week, uh, we saw in those 10 generations of Genesis chapter 5, We saw 10 generations of Cain's descendants trying to be like God without God by eliminating that which reminded them that they were not God, by eliminating God's people from the earth until only Noah was left. And so how are these people in this story, how are they attempting to be like God without God? Well, what did we learn three months ago? In the sermon about the sons of God and the Nephilim, we learned that, or I made the case at least, that the sons of God were high-level, high-level angelic hierarchy uh, who were in some shape or form on the earth uh, and, and taking to themselves the daughters of men, having liaisons with human women not even just rank-and-file angels, high-level divine beings, members of God's divine council, having liaisons with these human women and creating the super race of hybrid angel-human mutant giants that roamed and ruled the earth. Uh, and, And in that story, there's no suggestion of force or of 
Uh, there's no suggestion of force in that. It, it, it's a suggestion of a willingness, so hum, human beings willingly entering into these relationships. Humans, probably the elites, as always, voluntarily offering their daughters in the hope of creating for themselves a dynasty of immortal offspring, of immortal descendants. And the evil had come into the world and set the trap, and mankind walked right into it uh, in the hopes of what? Being like God without God. But what's important, what's important about that uh, is what it represents, is, is what kind of sin was that? And it's the sin, it, it was the sin, it was the ultimate expression of transcending the barriers that God had placed in the created order. And that's what sin, you know, really always is, or often is. Uh, we saw that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What did we see? Uh, that God was creating order in the world. That he was building a world with order in it and, and uh, build, making things after their own kind. And we saw that in the things that he had created was meaning and purpose. And that the way that we would honor God, the way that Adam and Eve, one of the ways that they would honor God, the way that we honor God and give him thanks, is by acknowledging that created order and then living in accordance with it, rather than discarding it and coming up with our own orders and recreating the world in our own image. Uh, and then what did we see? Uh, we saw in Genesis 3 through 6... Each generation just systematically transgressing every boundary in their headlong pursuit to be like God. Uh, and what's important about this is that if, if the ultimate barrier is being transgressed, the barrier between the supernatural beings and human beings, you know if the, word, if the, if the ultimate barrier is being transgressed, that means all the lower barriers are being transgressed as well. People ignoring the order and the purpose that God had put in the world and recreating it with their own meaning for their own purposes, calling, deciding for themselves what is good and what is bad, and trying to recreate the world in our knowledge, in our wisdom, in our power, uh, and probably the entire time feeling drunk with the sense of power and drunk with the sense of progress as they continued. However, uh, the terrible and sad irony uh, is that transgression can never deliver on its prob promise. They thought they, were trans trans they thought they were transcending these boundaries, but they were really transgressing the boundaries that God had put in place. And that transgression is never able to deliver on its, pro, pro, on its promise. It seems that there's almost like a mathematical formula that the farther along we get down that road, the more powerful we become, the more knowledge we gain, the more boundaries we demolish, the more brutal and the more violent and the more hopeless the world becomes. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, at the end of Romans 1, where he talks about men and men, mankind had abandoned God. They had chosen to consciously suppress 
the truth that they knew about God that was evident to them and things that were created. The created things, the created order had easily identifiable meaning and purpose in it. And they ignored and suppressed that truth in favor of living in their own way, living the way they wanted to live. Uh, and, and, and Paul says that at the end of that game, it's not peace, it's not utopia, it's not uh, freedom, it's slavery, it's bondage, it's chaos, it's violence, it's brutality, it's inventors of evil, it's heartless, faithless, ruthless. At the end of chapter, uh, in chapter one of Romans, Paul like, just lays out all this, these descriptive terms that talk about a world that has become hopelessly chaotic. The more powerful we are, the farther away we get from God, the more knowledge we gain, the worse we create the earth to be, which, which creates this bewildered uh, delusion. Why, why, is, why, is, uh, why is everything getting worse if, if, if things are getting better? Uh, especially where technology is concerned. We have a crazy arrogance as modern people. We think because we have iPhones that we're wise. <laughs> uh, wow, that's not true. We see the world morally descending into chaos and moral insanity and causing great harm. Uh, transgression it can't deliver on its promise. Now, there's an epidemic in, in the Netherlands of healthy, uh, otherwise healthy senior citizens who are, are clamoring uh, to be euthanized. The healthcare system, the technology, the technology has gotten so good that it's allowing people to live for so long, uh, and people are miserable. Because who would want to live forever in a fallen world? Uh, and that's really the question at stake here. What would happen? What would happen if we achieved our goal? What would happen if humanity, if we were able to create a post-human humanity that was eternal, omnipotent, omniscience, omnipresence, and freedom, but it was evil? That doesn't sound so great anymore. And the answer to that question is, it won't happen. God will not allow it to happen. Uh, he's patient. He's allowing evil to run its course, but he only allows it to run so far and no further, and his patience has a limit, and that's the second part. The first part is that we try to be like God without God, uh, and God has patience but his patience has a limit. I saw, the, uh, I saw somewhere this, some clever, clever atheists had got together <laughs> and created a, a realistic Noah's Ark playset. <laughs> I mean, maybe you can imagine what that might look like, but uh, the cover of the box in the marketing, the fake marketing material was a, like a picture of an undersea picture where from the, from the floor of the ocean looking up is thousands of bodies just sunk to the bottom. 
And what's the point? The point was, uh, the point was to show or to, to make the point that God, that this, this story of Noah and the animals is really a story of God who is a harsh, jealous, genocidal maniac who would wipe out the entire earth only because humans started to make some real progress. You can almost hear the, the echo of the serpent in that statement. God is holding out, and God is afraid that we'll find out we don't really need him. And so to counter that, God destroys the entire world. But God is not the harsh aggressor in the flood narrative. God is, in fact, the offended party. Uh, he's the one who is the offended party, and he is acting in patience and in a very measured and, long, and long-suffering response to what's happening on the earth. Uh, the pre-Diluvian world, well, I mean, I don't know, what do you think about when you think about the world before the flood? I tend to think, uh, you know, there's that awful Noah movie, maybe, you know, like some, some, some big armies of, like, tribal warlords, the rock creatures. And if Hollywood would just follow the script, you know? What are they... Anyways, don't, get, don't even get me started. <laughs> I tend to think about, you know, like, you know, animal skins and, you know, stone axes and... But that probably wasn't the reality. There have been some studies done on, 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 on taking, uh, you know, studies done based on other similar periods of history and timelines and growth rates of the human population where the population could have been 750 million up to 3 billion people depending on the timeline. I mean, we know one of the things I didn't get into last week was that those 10 generations in Genesis chapter 5 it doesn't list every single generation. There are gaps in that history that, of people who aren't mentioned, uh, which points towards the, the, you know, the, the, points towards the fact that they were making a theological statement. We included, they included these names for important reasons, and one of one was to create that message. So we don't know really how many generations there were, how much time had gone by, maybe a billion people. We know that there were cities. We know that there was art. We know that there was culture. The New Testament portrays the time before Noah as an advanced and flourishing culture. People were, it was a big, it was a party. It was not, uh, it was not in, uh, you know, an economically depressed or, or, or uh, you know, it was not turmoil. They were throwing marriages and giving in marriage and having parties and everything was great. Uh, and the point is that, that what that tells us is that that descent, God allowed that descent to continue for a long, long time. A long time, thousands of years. And during that time, we know from Genesis 5, at least four generations from Enoch through Noah were preachers, were prophetic preachers uh, evangelizing that world, calling on people to repent, uh, telling them that a judgment day was coming uh, in the same way the church does today, calling on the culture to repent. And there was an, an I believe when it talks about in the Bible, the 120 years that my spirit will only be with man 
<clears throat> for 120 years. I think that was an intermediate step that God instituted. That people lived long lifespans, and because of the evil that was, you know, and, 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 and they were living these long lifespans, and through these liaisons uh, with this, these supernatural beings attempting for immortality, God countered that by limiting human life to 120 years as an intermediate step. If you read it, it seems like he put this into place, and then even after that, people ignored God, ignored what was coming uh, until finally the flood came, still no repentance, and, uh, and God allows evil to succeed in the world all the way up to the point where there's only one guy left and his family who still worships God. In other words, God went all the way to the mat. He went all the way out with his patience uh, before he finally responded. And how did God respond? We see, we see the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, it's true that God cannot be overwhelmed by his emotions in the way that we are. He can't be ruled by his emotions in the way that we are. Uh, he can't be surprised by anything that happens. And yet, that doesn't mean that he's an unfeeling, unthinking machine. There's all kinds of verses that talk about God being grieved in his heart, grieving the Holy Spirit. He's not some impersonal force that feels nothing. God was grieved to his heart at what happened. And these words that are used in here are used elsewhere to express really the bitter indignation that's felt when someone or something you love is brutalized or desecrated. Uh, why does God hate sin? Because it destroys the thing he loves. It destroys his creation. It destroys the pinnacle of his creation. And so God is experiencing that bitter indignation of the, of the infection of evil into his beautiful creation. Uh, and so he regretted it, he repented, in other words, not in his emotions or in his mental thoughts. He repented and changed not his attitude, he changed his actions towards the world. God's patience had reached the limit. And he says, I will blot out man upon the earth. It's a word really that means to wipe off like a dish. Think about a, doing dishes at, after dinner and just under the sink, wiping everything off and cleaning it and, and uh, getting that dish ready to be used again. That's the word that's being used. God is promising to wipe the earth clean like a dish. And you know what's sad? What's really sad is that the people at this time the way Jesus portrays them, what we know, it seems almost certain that they thought that they had won the culture war against the Sethites. They probably thought, man, we've eliminated uh, the witness and the preaching of this 
you know, archaic and offensive and repressive ideal of God. We're free to do however we please. We're free to recreate ourselves in our own image uh, and do as we desire. And yet the Bible talks about that, not in terms of victory, uh, but it talks about that in terms of God giving people over to their sin. Essentially, hands off. Uh, It's a picture of God as a lion silently walking just outside the perceptions of reality in massive power, uh, collecting his people into glory and abandoning those who are left to their fate and to the sin and to the consequence of their sin. That's a scary thought that God does that. There is a point where God will give you over to your sin. Uh, Not people who are truly Christian and have the spirit but it used to be favorable or it used to be popular to say, uh, and I used to say this when I was a kid, I'll get right with God after I've had my fun. That's a dangerous bet. We don't get that so much here in Southern California because it's, you know, no one really has any desire to get right with a God who doesn't exist, right? But the reality is that God does that. There is a point, there is a limit where God will give people over. He does it to people. He'll do it with nations. He'll do it with ages. And that's what just happened here. What does that tell us? It tells us that in our age, all the big progressive victories that we see happening are not victories at all. And it's terribly sad. Uh, It should change our reaction to them as well. It's not victories at all. God is still quietly collecting his people into glory. Uh, And what it is, every one of those victories is God giving the people and the nation and the age over to sin, abandoning people to their fate. And somewhere in the celestial realms, the time clock is ticking to when God and the limit of his patience will run out for this age. On one very normal day, just as it was in the time of Noah when people are having a good time and we're at the peak of our economic and technological prowess, uh, the world will be no more, not by water, but by fire, Peter says, where the very constituent elements of the atomic world will dissolve. And the reality of heaven will crush in upon us. Uh, And God will bring his people into the recreation of a new heaven and earth. And so what does that tell us? That although God's patience has a limit, God's power has no limits. God's power has no limits. I'm going to date myself here. If you were a fan of football in the mid to late 70s, you remember Roger Staubach 
and the Dallas Cowboys, and Drew Pearson. Uh, and those men, D- D- Roger Staubach, the quarterback, Drew Pearson, the receiver, Hall of Fame receiver, they coined the term the Hail Mary play. In a pivotal game in 1975, uh, when they were, they were losing, there were seconds left on the clock. Staubach just threw it up in the air, you know, praying, and, and Pearson just miraculously caught the ball. They made the touchdown. They won the game. And from then on, uh, any play that was utterly desperate in the last seconds of the game, when defeat was absolutely certain, uh, was called the Hail Mary play. Or so, and so it, it's credited to Staubach and to, to Pearson for coining that phrase. However, I think... Uh, I think God is really the originator of the Hail Mary play. I mean, he seems to be just uttered, he seems to just utterly delight, if you read these stories, of waiting until the last possible second before he steps in and flexes his power and changes everything up. Over and over again. He seems to utterly just delight in it, just to be like, hey, I'm gonna let it get so bad. That when I step in and go, everybody's going to know it was God. And he's glorified in that. <laughs> uh, he waits to the very last minute before stepping in with the big upset. And you think that Satan would learn this, but apparently uh, there's more going on because it happens over and over and over again. Listen to all the Hail Mary plays of the Bible. We see it here. Uh, God lets it go down to the last man. I mean, that seems like risky, right? What's the, the, the point is that Noah is, is, is the descendant of Seth who's, who's, who is the, going to be the ancestor of Jesus. God has already promised that through, that, that one of Adam and Eve's ancestors through the line of Seth is going to be uh, the ancestor or bring about the Messiah at one point, the savior of the world. And God lets it get down to that last guy who it could possibly be. That seems kind of dangerous, right? Until he brings victory out of, of defeat by sealing them into an ark and saving him through the flood. Last minute play. We see that uh, Shem, Noah gets off the boat, the seed, the promise of the seed, uh, or the, the, the seed of the Messiah, seed of the woman. It goes through... Uh, Noah's son Shem, and by the time he gets to Abraham, all knowledge of God has once again been wiped off the face of the earth. Abraham uh, is, and his father Terah are, are worshiping the moon in the city of Ur, and God pulls them out and makes him a promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, or through his seed. We see Israel going to Egypt. They're enslaved, and Pharaoh orders all the male children to be killed. Same thing happening. God delivers Israel through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. We see Israel and Judah destroyed, thrown into exile, uh, and uh, with the purpose of assimilation so that, that all genealogical records of knowledge of that line will be uh, just decimated and assimilated and diluted throughout all the cultures of the world, and God saves and brings back a remnant of his people back to Israel. Uh, and we see when Jesus is born, Herod sends his, his soldiers to go to Bethlehem, the place where Jesus was born, to kill all of the babies. Uh, and Jesus and his family are sent to Egypt into safety. 
And in this, what do we see? We see it, it's, it gives away the satanic battle plan. The satanic battle plan. If, if the main story of the Bible, if the main organic revelation of the Bible is tra- tracing that family line and the promise of the seed of the woman going from Adam and Eve through Seth to Noah to Shem to Abraham to the son to Judah to David to Jesus. If that's the main storyline of the Bible, then we see the satanic battle line is attempting to to kill that seed no matter what. Uh, that's the counter story to destroy the seed. That's what all those stories are. And God waits till the last minute in all of those cases. And so really, in the Bible, the ultimate Hail Mary play is what? The ultimate Hail Mary play is the cross. Because finally, after millennia of being thwarted and frustrated, finally, Satan has his hand not on the ancestor of the seed, but the seed of the woman himself, the Son of God incarnate. Easy breezy. Kill the Messiah, no messianic kingdom, no salvation for God's people, checkmate, Satan wins. Uh, and then in the greatest display of God's limitless power and wisdom and foresight and foreknowledge, God uses that very thing, the murder of the Son of God, to be the instrument through which all of our sins are atoned for. I guess I... I can imagine like Satan getting that news in his war room. <laughs> Is he dead? <laughs> the poor guy that had to bring him the news, right? Well, yes, <laughs> but, but his death was the propitiation of all sin. God's forbearance of all sin uh, has now brought us to the point where Jesus died and his death paid for the sin of all God's people so that we no longer have any weapon against them. We have no longer any accusation against them. They are free and clear. They've received the righteousness of Jesus and are forever protected in God's family. We've lost. It's only a matter of time before we're rounded up and thrown into eternal prison. That's power. Man. Satan played right into God's hand again. I love what Ben Castaneda said a couple weeks ago. When it comes to when the divine meets the demoniac, it's a no contest event. Maybe the deepest irony in this whole story is that we can't be like God without God. It just doesn't work. However... What are the pro- what's the promise of God? The promise of God is to recreate us in his image. The promise of God is to make us to be like God as much as a creature can be and with God. That sounds like an even better deal. Listen to these verses. Listen to these promises. Uh, John says, Beloved, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's not, that's like, that's not like, um, wow, I don't even know what that's like. 
It's probably, you know, like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Jesus. Glorified, light emitting, uh, supernaturally spiritual bodies of unimaginable power. And, and we all, Paul says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's really talking about the, the, the moral image of God. We are being recreated uh, out of, of, of our appetites for death and being recreated uh, into appetites and the appreciation and the desire for things of life. The uh, Bible says that we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It says that God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we will become partakers of the divine nature. And Paul says that at the final day the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We'll be recreated in the image of God. We'll be like God as much as a creature can be and we'll be with God. You know, I mean, I remember my early faith, one of the most stunning realizations that came to me was that I realized that everything I was trying to get out of sin was exactly what, what God was giving me in intimate relationship with himself. I thought I wanted money, fame, power, uh, you know, things of the world, but what I, really th- what I really thought was that if I got money, if I got fame, if I got power, that those things would create joy and security uh, and purpose and meaning to my life. And yet, as always, the greater my ability, the greater I became, the more powerful I became, the more knowledge I the more I was able to exert and flex my power to be like God without God, the more chaotic and disordered and violent my life got. And when I finally became a Christian, I realized, I was like, oh my gosh. I had this intimate relationship with God, these promises of everlasting life, of being made and remade into the image of Jesus, being given a similar glorious body uh, and, and just the safety and security and peace and joy that went with that. I was like, wow, everything I thought sin would give me, this is giving me. We can't ever be like God without God on our terms. We don't have the power to do it. But we can be like God with God on his terms because he has the power to do that. And that's what his promises are for those who have faith in Jesus. And that is a pretty good deal. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are a foolish and stiff-necked. We're stubborn. We're short-sighted. Uh, we are constantly tempted uh, to take the right now over uh, the will be, we're constantly tempted to in, engage in things that we think will give us peace and security and joy right now, even though we know that every time we try them, it's a very short-lived peace, if there's a peace at all. 
and uh, we neglect your greater promises, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would make us like Jesus. And as the overarching quest of fallen mankind to achieve the promises given to Adam without God, without his help, without your help on our own terms, and that's just never going to happen. And so, Lord, we pray that you, um, we pray for those people that we know and love that are still trying it on their own terms. We pray that you would give us opportunity to speak words of life to them. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to fully appreciate what it is that we have in Christ and what it is that we will have and to let that fill our minds with wonder and worship and praise for you because that is what you deserve, Lord. Help us to stop worshiping ourselves and to worship you. And through that, allow us to be lights in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.